The reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 10, from verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's my great pleasure to introduce to you tonight Dan Peters, who is the minister and pastor of the Newcastle Reformed Evangelical Church. We look forward to what you have to say on the subject of doubt in this lecture this evening then I really just want to uh, do two things uh, in the first part of the lecture I want us to uh, clarify what the Bible says about doubt and then in the second part of the lecture to reflect on what the Bible says about doubt so let's uh, begin this evening then by uh, clarifying what the Bible says about doubt and there are uh, three words that I'd like to particularly draw to your attention. Uh, three words which uh, we find in the Bible 
which uh, basically mean doubt or something very close to that. Now, these are all uh, New Testament words, not, of course, because the Old Testament is unimportant, but because I think uh, the American theologian B.B. Warfield is right when he says the Hebrew of the Old Testament seems to lack an exact equivalent to our term doubt. So the three terms I'm going to uh, highlight are from the New Testament, and then also they all presuppose faith. So you might be chatting to a a non-Christian, And that uh, non-Christian might say to you, well, I'm very drawn to some aspects of Christianity. I like Jesus' teaching. I like the Sermon on the Mount. But I doubt that Jesus really rose from the dead, something like that. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. We're not talking about doubt in unbelievers. We're talking about doubt in believers. We're talking about doubt as a pastoral issue. And these three New Testament terms then all presuppose the existence, the presence of Christian faith. So the, the first uh, Greek word then is uh, distazo, uh, which uh, means something like then waver or hesitate. And we're talking here then about a fleeting kind of doubt. And the, the word is used twice in the New Testament, uh, both in Matthew's Gospel. So first of all, in Matthew 14, Verses, uh, well, verse 31, but I'm going to read verses 28 to 31. You know this uh, narrative well, I'm sure. It's where Jesus has walked uh, across the, the lake to that boat where the disciples are in the midst of that storm. And uh, you remember then what happens next. Peter's response to this event. So Matthew 14:28, Lord, if it's you, Peter said, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Distazzo, this fleeting, wavering, or hesitation. And then, again, Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 28, verse 17. So this is, uh, Jesus has, has risen from the dead, and he has summoned his disciples to meet him in Galilee. And so we read in Matthew 28, 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But then Matthew fascinatingly adds this, But some doubted. Again, this same word, distazzo, this wavering, this hesitation, this fleeting kind of doubt. So that's the the first word. The second uh, Greek word in the New Testament is diakrino, diakrino. And that then, we're talking here about a stronger uh, form of doubt. The word literally means to kind of dispute with oneself. We're talking here about a more deep-seated and a more sustained uh, dividedness of heart, if you like. So faith is certainly occupying one part of the heart, but it's not occupying, if you like, the whole of the heart. The heart is divided. There's faith there, but faith, as I say, isn't there alone. This deep-seated dividedness 
of hearts. So we have this in uh, Romans chapter 4 and verse 20. Let me read from verse 18. Uh, where Paul writes this, he's talking about Abraham in the course in Romans 4. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver, and it's translated waver there, certainly in the version I'm using, uh, possibly in other English versions as well, but it's really this stronger word. He did not waver, he did not doubt through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And of course that's interesting, isn't it? Paul's saying there that Abraham didn't doubt through unbelief. Because that's not necessarily the impression you get when you read the Genesis narrative, is it? I mean, back in, in Genesis 17, verse 17, Abraham has heard this report that his wife is going to have a child, and we read Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, will a son be born to a man of 100 years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And then, of course, we have the whole Hagar incident as well. So when you read the Genesis narrative, it looks as though Abraham does waver. But that's the point I'm making about this word. This word now in Romans 4 is a stronger word. And yes, Abraham did have that fleeting doubt. But he didn't have this deeper dividedness of heart that Paul is talking about in Romans 4. James chapter 1 verse 5 is, is another, or verse 6 rather, is another instance James 1 verses 5 to 8, James writes, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. That verse can sometimes seem a bit daunting and a bit frightening to us, can't it? Because we all know that we, we ask the Lord for things in prayer. And yet there's sometimes doubt present in our minds as we pray. But again, I think we need to be clear. James isn't talking about that fleeting wavering or hesitation. He's talking about something much more serious and deep-seated. Basically, he's talking about asking God for wisdom but really only doing it in a token way when actually you so much doubt that God is going to give you wisdom that you've already made the decision yourself. That's the kind of thing he's talking about, a real double-mindedness of that kind. Jude, verse 22, that very short command, be merciful to those who doubt. Again, it's the same word, diacrino. Or then one more instance uh, which is rather intriguing. Romans 14, verse 23, where Paul writes, but the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. And I'll come back to that verse in a moment. So there we, we've had uh, two words then. We've had uh, distadzo, and we've had diacrino. And then the third Greek word, apistia, apistia. And this then literally means 
unbelief. Unbelief. Now you might think, hang on a minute, you're contradicting here what, surely what you said uh, a moment ago in the introduction. You said that we're talking tonight uh, about Christian doubt. Now surely unbelief is going beyond the line. Surely unbelief is what non-Christians, what unregenerate people have. Uh, unbelief surely is that wholesale rejection of the gospel. Unbelief is quite a different thing from doubt. And so how am I saying then that apistia is a New Testament word for doubt? Well, for this reason, in almost every single instance, I think that's correct, that apistia, unbelief in the New Testament, denotes the unbelief of the unregenerate, the unbelief of non-Christians. Every time except for one text. And you might already be thinking what it is. Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Jesus in that encounter with a man whose son is possessed by a demon. And you remember how uh, Jesus challenges that man uh, regarding his, his faith and says, nothing is impossible for those who believe. And remember that man's response, I do believe, help my unbelief. So clearly in that instance, unbelief isn't an unregenerate thing. Unbelief in that instance is doubt. He's saying, I do believe, I do have faith, but there is also the presence of unbelief, of doubts. So those are the three uh, words then. I think that basically covers the, uh, the New Testament uh, terminology for doubt. But in addition to that, I do just want to uh, flag up also uh, two New Testament situations where I think doubt is evident even though the word isn't used. None of those three words is used, but two situations where I think we see doubt. And I guess th this is slightly less scientific uh, and a bit more arbitrary than looking at the three words because you may well be able to think of loads of situations where we see doubt in the, in the New Testament scriptures. Um, but uh, these two situations anyway uh, leap out to me. So first of all, John the Baptist, and this is Matthew chapter 11. You remember there how John the Baptist is in prison and uh, Jesus is continuing his uh, teaching and miracle working ministry uh, around Galilee. And we read this then, Matthew 11 verses one to three. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect someone else? That's a remarkable thing for John the Baptist to be saying, isn't it? This is the man who had said on seeing Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The man who had talked about and how he was unworthy to loose his sandals. He had spoken of Jesus in such adoring terms. And yet now he's sending a messenger to Jesus asking, are you really the Christ or not? There's doubt here in the heart of John the Baptist. And then the second New Testament situation then, uh, the first recipients of the epistle to the Hebrews. The epistle from which our reading was taken this evening. If you've 
read and studied Hebrews, you'll, you'll know that really throughout the epistle, there are these two interwoven themes. On the one hand, these stark, stark warnings about falling away from the Christian faith. And then the other theme is this exposition of the superiority of Jesus Christ to all the types, all the pictures in the Old Testament, all of which have found their fulfillment, the writer keeps saying, in Jesus Christ. So there are these two themes, warnings and exposition of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And why are they interwoven? What's the relation between these two themes? Well, presumably, the reason that these Hebrew believers are in danger of falling away is that they are doubting the superiority of Jesus Christ to all those Old Testament pictures and types. They are beginning to be drawn back to the types and pictures. They are doubting that Jesus Christ really has fulfilled them all by his mission and by his one sacrifice for sins. So three New Testament words then and two New Testament uh, situations. And that then is the kind of raw uh, biblical data that we are uh, working with this evening. And I think that we can kind of sort that data into three distinct realms then where doubt may operate. We can identify from that data three distinct realms where doubt may operate. First of all, the realm of Christian truth. So doubt can be directed toward or directed against just the sheer facts of the gospel. That's what's happening in Matthew 28, 17, isn't it? Those there, as Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, those who doubted there in Matthew 28, 17, what are they doubting? They're doubting the fact of the resurrection. They're doubting just the sheer objectivity, the sheer historicity of that fact. John the Baptist, again, it's, it's in the realm of Christian truth, his doubt. He's doubting that Jesus really is the Christ. The recipients of that epistle to the Hebrews, again, they're doubting in the realm of Christian truth, doubting that Jesus Christ really is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament pictures and types. So that's one realm where, where doubt can operate in the realm of just basic uh, propositions, the realm of the truth of the gospel. And of course, we all know that. We all know it perhaps from our own experience, or some of us at least, uh, doubts in that particular area, doubting that Christianity is authentic, doubting that the gospel is true. Secondly, doubt can operate in the realm of Christian experience, in the realm of Christian experience. So Peter then, there in Matthew 14, as he's walking on the water, what is his doubt? His doubt isn't about the truth of the gospel. It isn't about the historicity of the resurrection. His doubt in that moment is that Jesus Christ in that situation can actually keep him afloat on top of that lake that Jesus Christ actually has the power to keep him walking on top of that water. That's his doubt. 
James chapter 1 verse 6, what's the doubt there? The doubt is that God can really give me the wisdom that I need in this particular situation that I'm in, this dilemma, this crossroads. It's that God can actually impart into my head, into my brain, the wisdom that's needed to make this decision. Mark 9, 24, that's father of the demon-possessed boy. What's, what's he doubting when he says, help my doubt, help my unbelief? He's doubting that in that situation, Jesus Christ can really sort out that boy's condition, can really bring healing to that demon-possessed lad. So, as I say, in, in those instances then, it's not doubt about the the authenticity of the gospel, it's doubt about, about God or Christ's ability to do something in this particular moment that I'm now in, in this particular situation in which I find myself. It's in the realm of Christian experience. And then thirdly, doubt may operate in the realm of Christian conduct. And this then is that uh, intriguing text in Romans 14, Romans 14, uh, 23. Now, you may uh, well know the context there. You may well have read Romans 14. Uh, basically, then, Paul is envisaging a situation where there are uh, Jews in that Roman church uh, who uh, feel that it is wrong to eat meat, who on theological principle uh, are vegetarians, they will not eat meat. And he's envisaging a situation then in which those Jews with those scruples do eat meat. And they do so because of some kind of pressure that they feel on them from within the Christian community. And they do eat meat even though they think it's wrong to do so. Even though they feel in their own consciences that it's wrong, they do it anyway. And so the doubt in that situation is doubting that what they're doing is right. But they do it anyway. And Paul says that actually they are sinning in, in doing that. Even though, of course, Paul doesn't think that you only have to eat meat. Even though Paul is quite fine with them eating meat, he, he says that they are sinning because they're going against their own scruples of conscience. As Herman Ridderboss puts it, for a Christian, not a single decision and action can be good, which he does not think he can justify on the ground of his Christian conviction and his liberty before God in Christ. Objectively, it's not a sin to eat meat. For them, it is because they think it's wrong. And so they are eating it, not out of gratitude to God and giving him glory in doing so, but they are doing it just out of some kind of pressure upon them. So those are the three realms then in which doubt may operate in the realm of Christian truth, in the realm of Christian experience, and in the realm of Christian conduct. Now just before we move on, I guess there's a significant uh, omission there there's an area that I, that I haven't mentioned because it didn't come up, I think, in any of the texts that I refer to. And that is the doubt which you sometimes come across in Christians, and you may have experienced it yourself, doubt regarding your own salvation. 
doubt that you are a regenerate person. Doubt that you really have been converted, that you really have been saved by the power of the Holy Spirit. And as I say, you encounter that uh, form of doubt, I think in some uh, constituencies of the evangelical church, it's particularly common, or it has been certainly historically. Uh, but the reason, as I say, that it didn't come up is because I don't think it is something you ever encounter in the scripture. Uh, it's, it's something that you encounter as you read church history, but I don't think anywhere in the New Testament you encounter that kind of doubt. A doubt in, I suppose, what we would call the area of assurance of faith, assurance of salvation. Uh, as uh, Professor Donna McLeod writes, the Bible lays down very clearly that it is perfectly normal for a Christian to be assured of his own salvation. In fact, it is very difficult to find in either the Old Testament or the New any instance of a child of God doubting whether he or she is a child of God. So I don't want to demean that form of doubt or downplay it uh, because as I say, there may be those here this evening who have struggled with it, but I think it does need to be said that it is not a form of doubt that we actually encounter within the pages of scripture. So that then is uh, the first uh, thing that we needed to do this evening to clarify then uh, what the Bible says about doubt. And uh, I'm saying then that there are these three words, there are these additional two situations that I wanted to flag up and that we can kind of organize that data into uh, these three realms, doubt in the realm of Christian truth, in the realm of Christian experience and the realm of Christian conduct. So in the second part of our lecture then, uh, let's uh, reflect on what the Bible says about doubts. We've clarified what it says, let's reflect a little on what the Bible says about doubt. And in doing so then, uh, we're going to confine ourselves to the first two of those realms. We're not going to be thinking about uh, doubt in the realm of Christian conduct, the Romans 14 situation. Um, I think I've said all that's really necessary about that. We're going to confine ourselves to doubting the the authenticity, I suppose, of the gospel and uh, those doubts that we may have within Christian experience as well. And I want to just ask three questions then. So question number one, how serious is doubt? How serious is doubt? And the first thing I want to say here then is that we mustn't underestimate it. We mustn't underestimate this issue of doubt within the Christian life. We mustn't make too little of it. Why? Why mustn't we underestimate it? Well, first of all, because of its trajectory. Because of its trajectory. Let me quote to you uh, some, I think, hugely uh, wise words from the Puritan John Owen. He writes this, sin aims always at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, might it have its own course, it would go out to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. 
Every thought of unbelief would be atheism. Might it grow to its head? He continues, herein lies no small share of the deceitfulness of sin. It is modest, as it were, in its first motions and proposals, but having once got footing in the heart by them, it constantly makes good its ground and presseth on to some further degrees in the same kind. So you see what he's saying there. He's saying that sin, and of course sin is not itself a personal agent, but perhaps we should say the one behind sin, the evil one, his desire is really to utterly ruin us with sin. But he knows that he can't just do that instantaneously in a moment, and so he starts small, and he gets us to commit modest sins at first, but unless checked, unless dealt with, those will grow and grow and grow to into their fullest expression. And so when it comes to doubt then, its trajectory is thoroughgoing unbelief, atheism as John Owen puts it here. If it could develop to its full expression, that's what it would be. And that's why then the writer to the Hebrews does use such stark warnings. Not because necessarily the people to whom he's writing are at that moment on the brink of just completely uh, unraveling as Christian people. But because that's the direction they're going in. They may still be some way from that. They probably are if they're going to be reading this letter at all or hearing it read. But that's where this sin that they're flirting with, that's where it will end up. That's what the writer is saying. So we, we mustn't underestimate doubt for that reason. Because doubt, if undealt with, if entertained habitually, it will develop into something bigger. And then secondly, we mustn't underestimate it, I think because of its nature, doubt is serious, just because of its nature, I think it's a particularly paralyzing sort of thing, doubt, isn't it? Those of you who have struggled with doubt will know that. It's the kind of thing that, that kind of takes over all your intellectual faculties and therefore really does affect your Christian life in very far-reaching ways affects your uh, capacity to serve Christ in a healthy and wholehearted way. It's the sort of thing that, as I say, kind of hijacks and takes over your thinking. And you kind of have to put everything else on hold almost. All your normal service of Jesus Christ has to go on hold while you deal with these doubts. And so for that reason, it's because of its nature, because it's a particularly kind of distracting sort of thing. Again, it, it's serious. It's, it kind of sidelines us in some ways from the Christian life. And again then, we ought to take it seriously and we mustn't underestimate doubts. So how serious is doubt? Well, we mustn't underestimate it. But then secondly, we mustn't overestimate it either. We mustn't overestimate it. Why do I say that? 
Well, first of all, because I think much of the doubts that we worry about in ourselves as Christians is purely at the level of feelings often. It is purely at an emotional level. It isn't actually affecting our actions. We're not acting on those feelings of doubt. We are still functioning properly and healthily as Christians. But just as our emotions are prey to all kinds of winds and currents, aren't they? On a daily basis. We're all over the place, often emotionally, aren't we? So doubt has the habit perhaps of just coming and going sometimes at that level. And I think we, we shouldn't overestimate that and we shouldn't get overly worried about doubt at that level. It is when doubt starts to affect our actions, starts to affect our behavior, starts to affect our Christian functioning. It's then that it becomes a problem. But just generally with all of our feelings, we, we need to be aware that we we don't make too much of them because we are emotionally volatile beings and at an emotional level we are up and down all the time. But then secondly and more importantly, why mustn't we overestimate it? Because justification by faith does not mean that faith is the ground of our salvation. Justification by faith does not mean that faith is the ground of our of our salvation. I think we need to be absolutely clear on this. We all believe, I'm sure, in the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. That we're not justified by what we do, by the, our effort, by our performance. We are justified by simply trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I think the danger for us who believe that doctrine is that works can get in very subtly and very cleverly by a back door and they get in then in the area of our faith and we start to make faith itself a work and we say well I'm justified by faith therefore my faith has to be jolly good my faith has to be absolutely perfect my faith has to tick all the boxes and meet all the marks and we kind of make faith almost the ground of our justification. We are justified on the basis of our faith. And of course, that's absolutely incorrect. We are justified on the basis of Christ's obedience, which we receive by faith. Faith is the channel, the means by which we receive that obedience which he has rendered on our behalf. Our faith is absolutely not the ground or the basis of our justification. And so, in other words, our faith will be weak and it will be flawed and it will be imperfect as much as anything else in us is. We couldn't possibly be justified on the basis of our love or our honesty. We, we all know that, don't we? We know that our love and our honesty are filthy rags. Well, our faith is exactly the same. It's as much as of a filthy rag as any other part of us is. Faith then that sometimes is riddled with doubt does not imperil our justification because our justification is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. J. Gresson Machen in his great book, What is Faith? 
writes this, even very imperfect and very weak faith is sufficient for salvation. Salvation does not depend upon the strength of our faith, but it depends upon Christ. When you want assurance of salvation, think not about your faith, but about the person who is the object of your faith. Faith is not a force that does something, but it is a channel by which something is received. We mustn't overestimate doubt, as though somehow the moment we succumb to a doubt, our whole salvation is in jeopardy. Our salvation is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So how serious is doubt? Well, we mustn't underestimate it, but nor must we overestimate it. Second question, why do we doubt? Why do we doubt? Where does doubt come from? Well, there are doubtless many things we could say in connection with this, but let me just make two or three points here. First of all, I think there's often, usually, in fact, more to it than merely a persuasive argument. In other words, it's not that we simply read something by Richard Dawkins and find it terribly persuasive and so we doubt. I think generally the reasons are more complex than that. So let's go back again to these Hebrew believers to whom that epistle was written. And here they are then, and as I say, they are doubting the messiahship essentially of Jesus Christ. They are doubting the saviorhood of Jesus Christ. They are doubting that he really is the one who fulfills all the types. They're going back to, to sheep and bulls and goats, or at least they're drawn in that direction it seems. They are doubting that Jesus is the savior. Now, why is that? Is it that someone has come up with some elaborate intellectual arguments that undermines the messiahship of Jesus. And that has created the doubts. Well, when you read the epistle to the Hebrews, that doesn't seem to be the case. I, th I think I'm increasingly persuaded that in many ways, the, if you want one text, that open, one verse that opens up the epistle to the Hebrews, it's uh, Hebrews 12 and verse 16 where the author says, see that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. So why did Esau sell this incredibly privileged status that he had as the oldest son he did so for a quick fix. He did so for something right here, right now, a meal. He was hungry and he wanted something there and then and so he exchanged this great privilege as the heir for that. And I think that is taking us to the heart of the Hebrews problem that they were basically just getting worn down by the ordinariness of the Christian life, 
waiting for a salvation that was still to come, waiting for the glory that was still to come, waiting for Jesus to return. They were getting worn down by just waiting amidst the banality and the mundaneness of everyday life, Monday to Friday, at work, in the home, wherever it might be. They were getting worn down by that. And they were wanting something here and now. They were wanting a quick fix. And of course, old covenant religion with all its smells and bells, with all its visibility, and with all its rites and rituals, that had something in the here and now. It had something to offer now, a bit of pomp and a bit of show and a bit of razzmatazz. In other words, it wasn't that they had been persuaded by some intellectual argument, no, Christ isn't actually the real thing. It was just that they wanted something different. They wanted something more visible and more externally appealing. And I think it's generally the case still for us, as I say, that when doubt starts to rise within us, there's more to it than just some mere intellectual argument that has persuaded us. Again, we, we need to look into our hearts and ask, well, is it actually that there are ulterior motives here, just as there were for these Hebrews? It's always so important, I think, that we examine why exactly we're entertaining these doubts. Why do we doubt and then where does doubt come from? Well, it's often more than just a persuasive argument. Secondly, I guess it's often because of our neglect of the means God has appointed for the strengthening of our faith. That's a fairly simple point to make, isn't it? God has given us means, hasn't he, by which our faith is to be strengthened. He has given us the, the preaching of his words. He has given us prayer. He has given us the fellowship of the saints. He has given us the sacraments, the Lord's Supper to be partaken of regularly. And these are means then which will strengthen our faith. And if neglected, the opposite is bound to happen and our faith will be weakened and we will become more and more fertile ground for doubts to embed themselves within us. And you see that in Hebrews 10, don't you? The passage that Simon read to us earlier. Don't forsake the meeting together of the believers as some of you are doing, the writer says. So here were these Hebrews and they were doubting the, the Messiahship of Christ and the writer saying, well, it's no wonder You've stopped meeting together. You've stopped encouraging one another. You've stopped using the means that God has given for the maintenance of your faith. It's no wonder that it's starting to fall apart. And then a third point in this connection, why do we doubt? Again, very simple. The devil likes to create doubt. And I'm not just saying that because of some caricature of the devil but because we have biblical warrant for saying that don't we go back to the very first appearance of the devil back in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden 
What's he doing? He's creating doubt, isn't he? Did God really say dot, dot, dot? He's sowing seeds of doubts in Eve's mind. And I'm sure that still he does that. That's why then perhaps doubt sometimes can just very kind of suddenly and for no apparent reason erupt within us, can't it? It can just suddenly surface. And there doesn't seem to be any rational grounds for us suddenly entertaining this doubt. And I'm saying then it's because the evil one is behind it. There's a supernatural force behind it. It's not just a natural thing of cause and effect. Because of this, I'm doubting. But there's this supernatural force behind it. Satan sowing seeds of doubt in our minds. So we've looked at how serious is doubt. We've considered why do we doubt. But then thirdly and finally this evening, what should be done with doubts? What should be done with doubts? As I say, then, this is something that all of us, no doubt, uh, struggle with from time to time. Well, what should we do with our doubts? Well, first of all, what should we do with others' doubts? How should we treat, how should we react to others around us, other Christians who are doubting? Well, of course, Jude tells us, doesn't he, in that little instruction we referred to earlier on, be merciful to those who doubt. Striking that, isn't it? Be merciful. Michael Green comments, when men are beginning to waver, that is the time for a well-taught Christian to come alongside them and help. A man who is flirting with false teaching is not to be sent to Coventry by his Christian friends. They must have him into coffee and chat it over with him in love. We need to take that seriously, don't we? Jude isn't there writing a textbook for professional pastors. He's writing to Christian believers generally. And he's saying you all have a pastoral responsibility towards those in the Christian community who are beginning to succumb to doubt. Get alongside them. Be merciful. Don't just stand on high moral ground and read the riot act. But be merciful. Gently. Patiently. Humbly. Get alongside them. And be part of their restoration. So in others, be merciful. But what about in ourselves? What should we do with our own doubts? Well, the simple answer that I want to leave you with is take your doubts to Jesus. Take your doubts to Jesus. So that's what John the Baptist was doing, isn't it? As he sat there in prison, he was overcome suddenly it seems with doubt about the Lord Jesus what did he do well he didn't just carry on sitting there in prison thinking over his doubts and allowing them to fester and to stew and to develop and to more and more take over him but instead he sent messengers to Jesus he couldn't go himself he was in prison but he did what he could to get his doubts to Jesus it's what that father of the boy does in Mark 9. What is he doing? He's crying out. He's not just expressing the fact that he has unbelief in him. He's saying, help my unbelief. It's a prayer. It's a request. It's a petition. 
He's asking Jesus to do something for him in his doubts. And when we do that, we shall find that Jesus is gracious to indeed help us and to relieve us and to address our doubts. That's what John the Baptist discovered. I read verses one to three earlier. How does the, that little narrative conclude? Matthew 11 verse four. Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, I am the Messiah. I am the one who was to come. And I am doing messianic acts all over the place as you are there in prison, John. And he tells these messengers to take back to John the report of all these evidences and all these attestations that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. What a gracious response, isn't it? Jesus doesn't say, how dare John doubt that I'm the Messiah. Jesus graciously and pastorally addresses the doubts. So he does with the father of the demon-possessed boy. It's an intriguing passage, that Mark chapter 9. We encounter exorcisms on virtually every page, don't we, of, of Mark's gospel, certainly. And many of them look very similar to each other, but there are one or two little differences with this one. Mark chapter 9, uh, verse uh, 25, uh, we read that Jesus, uh, first of all, rebuked the evil spirit, you deaf and mute spirit, he said. He labels the evil spirits in, in that way, you deaf and mute spirit. That, that's a bit different. He doesn't do that on any other occasion. And then he says, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Again, he doesn't do that on any other occasion. Tell the demon never to enter again. But he does here. There's something a bit more emphatic, I think, about this exorcism than most of the exorcisms. Why? Well, perhaps because Jesus is answering the Father's prayer and helping his unbelief. And for him, he's not just doing a bog-standard exorcism. He's doing a real dramatic exorcism to really dispel those doubts that are there in that man's heart, graciously answering the prayer. Or then, finally think about Peter. And there's Peter, and he's walking across the water, and then the doubts start to come, and what happens, he starts to sink. And as Jesus, just watch and say, good riddance, you doubter, as he disappears beneath the water. No, Jesus reaches out and rescues him. He rescues him from the consequences of his doubts. What a gracious savior toward that doubting disciple. And again, what an encouragement to us then to take our doubts to Jesus. We won't find him treating us harshly because this is in some different category to all our other sins. Other sins are fine, but doubt, that's just an unforgivable sin. No, Jesus, as he deals with us so graciously when we take any sin to him, he will deal graciously when we take our doubts to him. And he will answer our prayers and he will help us through the doubting and out 
the other side. Take your doubts to Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks, uh, Dan. Um, I was very struck by what you said about how often it's not the persuasiveness of arguments. Really, there's something deeper than that. There's a desire just to see glory now rather than glory later. Thinking specifically on things that we've seen happen this year, and I'm thinking of churches that are now considering whether they want to embrace same-sex marriage within their denominations. Would you say, I mean, without looking into people's souls, but would, would you think that perhaps it's not just the persuasiveness of the arguments, it's the fact that people are just tired of the humdrum battle of remaining true to the word and looking for glory in this world rather than waiting for it in the world to come? I think that's uh, quite possible, Mike. Um, I think our uh, motives as, as human beings are always complex things and uh, always, of course, polluted and tainted by sin. And um, yes, I think uh, the example that you've just mentioned is, is an interesting one. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it's, it's quite likely that it's not just the force of, of intellectual argument, but that uh, there is, as you say, that, um, that more sinister underlying motive. Yeah. Do you think that one of the most visible or invisible areas of doubt within the church is in the realm of prayer? Personal, corporate, unanswered, seemingly unanswered prayer. Do you mean um, that that kind of creates doubt within us when we pray and uh, we don't see any answers? Perhaps lack of it, lack of commitment, individually, corporately, as church. Mm -hmm. Seemingly, and I say seemingly, unanswered prayer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I, th I think uh, certainly uh, prayer is itself a great uh, gauge uh, of our of our faith, um, and we can easily profess great things uh, about God and give great professions of Christian faith, but where um, there is little prayer and um, where prayer is in, in disrepair, then um, that is an attestation of, of lack of faith or, or doubt or, or whatever term you want to use. Um, and then in terms of the other way around, which I, th I think you're, you're perhaps getting at, um, that, yeah, parents, uh, apparently unanswered prayers can themselves then fuel uh, doubts and, um, but of course we need to um, come back to what, what that means, unanswered prayer. Is there any prayer that actually is unanswered? Prayers aren't necessarily answered in the way that we envisage, in the way that we want, um, but uh, I'm not sure there's any prayer that ultimately is unanswered. Um, I think God uses every prayer that, that his people pray. I was just a little bit troubled when you said that the Bible doesn't speak of, about lack of assurance. Because surely that's an experience of many Christians. So whilst it might not speak about it directly, is there anything you could say just about it from the principles that the Bible enunciates? Well, I think the fact that the Bible uh, doesn't mention it is itself instructive and we need to ask the question, therefore, well, where has it come from? If it is a problem, and it certainly uh, has been and, and possibly is, 
for some, then why is that? Uh, if it wasn't a problem for the New Testament churches, presumably it wasn't, Paul and the others didn't seem to address it in their epistles, why has it been a problem since? Um, and I'm sure there are many and complex answers to that. I think often it has been um, just poor teaching uh, and uh, imbalances and disproportions entering into the, the teaching of, of the gospel um, where there's perhaps been uh, a disproportionate emphasis on uh, self-examination. Self-examination, of course, is important and is biblical, uh, but um, more of an emphasis on that than uh, trusting on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think that has, has proven um, difficult and dangerous uh, in some contexts. I think we just need to get to the, to the bottom of why it is a problem, where it is a problem, um, rather than trying to uh, find it where it isn't in the, in the New Testament. Um, I, mean, I, th I think there are, um, there are passages which um, seek to assure us um, of our salvation, but without ever assuming that we um, that we would be unassured of it. So, for instance, in you know, Romans 8, um, you have um, that, that great section from verse 18 down to verse 30 on kind of future glory and the, the resurrection and the, the new creation and so on. And then you have that great final section, verses 31 down to 39, where um, I think Paul in those verses is simply just uh, producing argument after argument to assure us that, that this will happen. Um, you know, if, if, if God uh, is for us, who can be against us? If he's uh, not spared his own son, then will he not with that give us everything else? Um, so I think there are passages where Paul is certainly um, seeking to um, reinforce our assurance of salvation, but there doesn't seem to be anywhere where he assumes that we have no assurance of salvation. Perhaps there's an indication that there can be vulnerable times. John the Baptist was in prison. Mm -hmm. um, Perhaps people in hospital I often think it's very important that people are visited in hospital. Mm -hmm. There can be situations, like after bereavement, mm -hmm. where people are vulnerable to doubt. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And um, I think it's the same, again, with the, the Hebrew believers that, uh, you know, again, you read chapter 10, and clearly there was suffering, there was persecution. Um, talks about property being confiscated and so on. Um, so again, that, that was another factor being thrown into the equation. Uh, of course, Peter, it was obviously the, a circumstantial issue. He looked at the storm. Um, so certainly um, what's going on around us uh, affects this quite significantly. Following on from the uh, instances Collins just mentioned, uh, my question is simply this. Uh, if Jesus graciously and pastorally got alongside Peter and others, how do you prepare people in your fellowship to do the same thing? Uh, or do you know of other churches where people are helped to do this? Uh, it seems to me from my experience that so often people think, well, that's for somebody else. It's not really for me. It's a very difficult issue because I might be seen to be judging these people um, where the very thing they need is somebody just quietly to get alongside them and befriend them and help them. Mm -hmm. So I'm avoiding using the word training because it sounds as if there might be a panacea. But it seems to me also that people do need to be prepared 
to take this on because it, it can be very delicate. It's very easy just to do something once, but mm -hmm. sometimes you've got to carry on and carry on and be there and be prepared to be gracious and pastoral. Yes, that's right. Uh, I, th I think also, again, we need to uh, kind of destigmatize the whole issue of, of doubt because people do see it as almost this kind of um, especially uh, sinful thing and this almost unforgivable sin and therefore don't uh, perhaps like to admit that they're struggling with it and so other people in the church don't know that they're struggling with it and so aren't going to help them pastorally with it so I think the that's uh, one thing that needs to be done it needs to be taught clearly uh, from our pulpits that we are justified by faith alone and that faith is the the channel not the basis of our justification that uh, doubts are normal there's a great chapter in um lloyd jones book spiritual depression uh where he expounds uh matthew 14 peter um there walking on the water and uh, he really emphasizes the the normality of doubts he even goes fast to say that if you you've never had doubts then i wonder whether you're a christian uh, at all um so uh, he, he's very strong on that. So I, I think we need to be teaching that uh, and so destigmatizing it uh, so that people uh, feel able to talk about it and then others hopefully will be more uh, able to, to help and to, to get alongside. We know that God's unchanging and he can do whatever he wants and he can do all things. And yet in the Old Testament and in the New Testament even, we have Peter walking in the, the water in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we have the seed being divided. And yet, we don't see that in our time. Is there anything helpful you can say, now that the canon is closed, how can we trust in God in the same way? Well, part of the answer to that, I guess, is that we, uh, we have the record of all those um, great events. Um, and uh, our faith, therefore, is based on um, on the, the the God who um, who parts the seas and and so on, uh, but we haven't actually seen that happen. But we have the record uh, of these things. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's easy to to uh, think that um, you know for, for for saints in in biblical times it was so much easier to trust in God than it is for us. Um, because of all these things that were happening. Of course, in actual fact, these great events happen very seldomly, um, even in, uh, in biblical times. Uh, and, of course, what we do need to keep coming back to is that our privileges are greater because we do have the complete canon and uh, we have the, um, the complete gospel uh, that we can go back to. You know, the Israelites who saw the... Um, the parting of the Red Sea, they knew nothing of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, whereas we can look back on that as a past event. Um, so, yeah, I think we can, we can think of uh, life now as, as very uh, unglamorous by comparison, but uh, that's not the case. And I think that's what the, um, the writer to the Hebrews is arguing in chapter 11, you know, where um, he uh, talks about these Old Testament heroes um, and how... Um, you know, they did experience all these things, you know, Noah and Moses and Abraham, they had all these great experiences, but uh, what he keeps coming back to is that phrase, by faith, by faith, by faith. And I think his whole point there is that actually 
Um, you Hebrew believers feeling so sorry for yourselves, life's so ordinary, you're just going to work every day and it's so banal and mundane. Uh, actually, you know, Abraham and Noah and Moses were in exactly the same situation as you're in um, because they were living by faith and so are you. And the fact that they built arcs and that they went on long journeys into other countries and stuff is irrelevant. They were living by faith and so are you. You're in exactly the same situation that they were, except your privileges are greater because uh, now the author and finisher of the faith has been. Um, so, yeah. Thank you very much for that. You were um, quite deliberate about looking at doubt amongst believers, but I wonder if you would like to say something about, um, about full-on unbelief, about people who walk away from the faith altogether, about perhaps the warning there in the Hebrews 10 passage that was read, and if I can um, sort of add a second part to it, I, I was particularly struck by what you said about people having a motive for, um, for, for doubt, that we should examine our motives. And I wonder if, if this kind of, of total unbelief is, again, often motivated by something else. Uh, I think often another sin that people want to get to. And I'm particularly thinking of examples I've seen during my lifetime of men who leave the church and their wives at round about the same time. Yeah, I mean, with regard to the second part of the question, um, I'm not sure that actually for anybody, for the most convinced atheist um, who never entertains any Christian faith, I'm not sure that there is, there is such a thing as just genuine intellectual unbelief. I think for, um, for every human being who is made in the image of God has, there's you know, Calvin put it, the seed of religion uh, within them. Um, there is al always a moral aspect to, to unbelief and rejection of the gospel. Um, I don't think anybody does it simply out of force of argu the intellectual arguments. Um, they don't want the gospel and they don't want God. And that's the underlying motive. Um, so I think we need to be clear on that. With regard to uh, doubt then and unbelief, I mean, I think in actual fact, strictly speaking, um, Doubt, by definition, presupposes faith. I mean, I think you, you can't really doubt something unless th th there's, th there's faith there. Um, so I think that's what, you know, the Bible never calls the unregenerate person's um, condition as one of doubt, it's one of unbelief. Um, doubt does presuppose uh, faith. But, uh, yeah, you were thinking of those who, um, who were professing believers at one time and then kind of they follow that trajectory that John Owen talks about and they become unbelievers, yeah. Um, I mean, that is um, a very um, solemn and uh, a very complex situation. I, mean, I, I take the view that somebody who does that is not actually uh, regenerate in the first place, that a truly regenerate person cannot um, lose their faith in Jesus Christ and uh, that therefore the, the faith um, that was professed was um, something less than, than authentic and I think you know Hebrews 6 where you have that passage um, and th these people that he's talking about had great experiences of the Holy Spirit, experiences of the goodness of the Word of God uh, and the, the uh, age to come and so on but um, what he omits there is, I think, more striking than what he includes. They had no experience of Christ. He doesn't mention Christ there. They didn't have actually that personal um, engagement with Jesus Christ, um, and therefore their faith wasn't actually real.
Do you think that if we talk to our non-Christian friends and family about the fact that we are experiencing doubt, that helps us to be more real and authentic to them as Christians, or do you think that it's a bad witness? No, I think the former. Yeah, I, mean, I think you need to be careful, um, obviously, um, and I don't think it's helpful in any context to um, kind of parade weakness. Um, and I think often there can be um, there can be a kind of inverted pride behind that. But I think it's it's good to to reveal and and, and not hide weakness to to other Christians and to unbelievers as, as well. Um, and apart from anything else, you know, you want you're hoping those people will become believers. And if they do, then you have actually given them a completely unrealistic view of what the Christian life is going to involve for them if you haven't uh, given them any impression of, of the struggles. Um, and I think that, that is such an important point that we, again, part of this destigmatization, we need to be um, making new Christians aware that this is part um, of, of reality, not something, of course, that they should therefore be complacent about and, and not bothered about, but that when it happens, it's not something that uh, somehow disqualifies you as a Christian. Um, doubt is, is normal, as Lloyd-Jones so, is so emphatic on. So yeah, I, I, I would say that um, it's, it's perfectly fine and healthy to, um, to say that to, to unbelievers when you, know, when you have that relationship with them. Thanks very much for that. There were some really helpful um, things in there that I hadn't really ever thought about before, so thank you. Um, I was just wondering, um, Jesus, when he's praying in Gethsemane, he says, um, uh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Um, is that a form of the fleeting doubt that you talked about at first? Or is that something completely different? Um, no, I don't think there's any doubt there, Sam. I think um, there's a desire for the cross to be uh, taken away from him. Um, but um, do you mean there's a doubt that uh, he had to go to the cross? Doubt More doubt that, um, uh, that this was the best way to achieve what he knew he had to achieve. I think that... Uh, Jesus knew, obviously, that he had to go to the cross. I think in that moment, uh, because he is a, a true human being, uh, grief has so overwhelmed his intellectual faculties that um, he still kind of almost can't help praying that, that prayer. But I, don't th I, I wouldn't attribute that to doubt. Again, just that uh, desire for something which uh, ultimately, of course, wasn't in God's will. And we're perfectly entitled to pray for things which ultimately aren't in God's will. It's not, that's not sinful. Um, and I, th I think that's, that's what's happening there. Jesus is praying for something that, uh, that, that he uh, desires, but that uh, it wasn't in God's decree. He had to go to the cross. You spoke, Dan, of the uh, uh, doubt within, in particular experiences. Uh, I'm sure that there are many Christians uh, and particularly I'm thinking of some that are laboring mightily in the Christian Institute that are faced with uh, disappointments uh, and then, then will come this doubt as to the effectiveness of what they're doing. Have you any comment with regard to that? It applies in churches of course as well that people may be laboring and seeing no results and they may feel uh, that they doubt uh, what they're doing. 
there any comments to encourage those who are in such doubts? Yeah, well, we need, I guess, all of us, don't we, to have um, a robust view of God's sovereignty um, because, yeah, as you say, I'm sure that is very uh, relevant to the folk at the Christian Institute, but for, for all of us, um, uh, we see things in our daily circumstances uh, all the time um, that um, just don't seem to fit, that uh, don't seem to make sense, and uh, we just have to keep coming back to those great texts of Scripture which emphasize um, God's sovereignty, that uh, uh, He is working all things together for good, that He is in control, that He is an all-wise, sovereign Father. So, yeah, I, I suppose it's, um, it's kind of, again, that uh, doubt in the realm of Christian experience, perhaps, um, that I mentioned. Um, but, yeah, I think just immersing ourselves in the doctrine of, of God and of God's sovereignty is, is probably the best remedy for that. Can I say thank you to Dan for his lecture tonight and for the way he's answered our questions and for his rich and deep knowledge of scripture which was so evident tonight. So thank you very much for doing that.